thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. The Real Food Real is a fresh and educational podcast dedicated to your health. We get real on current research, debunk food myths, and educate you on how to just eat real food. Your host, Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist, is one of Australia's leading sports nutritionists, passionate about simplifying nutrition and addicted to coconut lattes, smoothies, and sweet potato. If you love the show, then please leave us a review on iTunes. Share the real food real with your friends and continue to spread the real food love. Hi team, and welcome to episode 29 of The Real Food Real. Today on the show, we speak with Jad Patrick, who is a naturopath and nutrition counsellor. Jad and I first met in 2008 when we worked together in Melbourne, and he's honestly one of the most well-educated and passionate natural health practitioners I've ever interacted with. He has over 10 years' experience in the health food industry and is an expert in gut health and food intolerances. Today on the show, Jad and I dive into these areas and teach you how to manage your food intolerances and heal your gut. Hi, Jad, and thanks so much for joining me today. Hi, Steph. Nice to be on the show. Good. Really excited to chat, and I'd love for you to set the scene for us and tell us a little bit more about yourself and and certainly your story in regards to natural health. Okay. Well, yeah, as as mentioned, I'm I'm a naturopath and also a counsellor, and I had I developed an interest in uh, healthy eating and, and natural therapies from a very early age. I had um, a lot of pets as a kid and, um, and was interested in looking after, uh, you know, their welfare. And so I read a lot of books on, on pet care and a lot of that had suggestions on improving diet and stuff for pets. Around about that time when I was 12, I went uh, vegetarian sort of for ethical reasons. And my parents at the time said, if you're going to be uh, if you're going to do this and go vegetarian, we want you to do it properly. So we want you to research everything you can about eating well. And and that uh, developed uh, like a lifelong interest into health and nutrition. And um, and from there, you know, graduating from high school in 1998, I think, um, Started a naturopathy course at the Southern School of Natural Therapies, and um, and then further down the track, also studied a graduate diploma in um, in counselling at the Australian College of Applied Psychology. So it's um, always been an area I've had a lot of interest in, and um, yeah, and the pet care thing was interesting because when a lot of the books on on how to look after pets would sort of say you've got to try to align the pet's diet and, and habits as close as you can with how they would find themselves in the wild. So the sort of foods they'd eat in the wild and the, um, you know, the the environmental situation they found themselves in. And I, I always wondered about that and how that applied to humans and what might be the optimal kind of diet for uh, human beings. You know, what is it that we evolved to kind of eat? And that sort of got me interested in the whole, um, you know, paleo and ancestral approach to, to eating as well. Yeah, I think that's really cool that you were thinking about the human evolution approach at such a young age. I mean, we know that paleo and primal has really only been quite popular in the last five years. So it sounds like you were well ahead of the of the eight ball back then. <laughs> yeah, I think the, the the first person I ever read who was writing on that topic was Art Devaney and um, and then later Lauren Cadane, and that was. That was in about 1999. So at the time, then I was still a still a vegan for for um, ethical reasons, but was uh, quickly changing my mind on nutritional issues. The more I kind of read up on that sort of stuff, stuff. Yeah, it's very cool. And so, just on the pet care topic, I know you had um, 
some, I guess, some experiments that you conducted with your goldfish. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Um, well, I, I knew I knew at the time that with fish, they don't tend to reproduce unless they're fed some wild food, some like raw food, living food, like worms and things like that. And um, so I used to breed angelfish as a kid and... Um, yeah, a key to that was you had to have quite a diverse range of foods. You couldn't just feed them on uh, dry food. Like you had to sort of um, – I, I think the dry foods these days are probably a lot better than back then, but it was sort of important that you did that or else they wouldn't uh, they wouldn't be in the right state of health to be able to reproduce, which I thought was really interesting seeing as so much of a – you know, so many people out there live off food that comes in, in boxes and you've got to wonder how that's affecting their, you know, hormones and genetic expression and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. It's pretty cool, again, that you're doing that at 12 years old. I think that's a great story and it shows certainly, you know, where it all started for you in terms of um, your career development. Yeah, I was definitely a nerd. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing wrong with that. Cool. So we've just touched briefly on your interest in human evolution, but I'd love for you to sort of set the foundation with what your real food message is, seeing as you're on the real food reel and that's what we're all about. Yeah, I guess mine would parallel what a lot of people sort of think. I think um, real food should be as close to what you'd find in nature, so as uh, as least processed, as as least meddled with as possible. Mm. Um, I, I like to tell my patients, avoid things that you couldn't prepare in your own kitchen, you know, assuming that you had basic cooking skills. If the food was... Um, something that you couldn't use, you know, your own kitchen utensils to prepare, it's probably not not good for you. So... That rules out most kind of industrially produced, you know, manufactured foods, you know, extruded products and, um, uh, you know, pop food and all sorts of weird things that really require a laboratory or a food scientist to come up with. I think mm-hmm. that's a, a safe, you know, broad thing to uh, avoid and focus on um, on whole foods that have been minimally processed and prepared fairly simply. Um, I tend not to uh, get people to be too exclusionary in their diets rather than I get them to focus on all the foods that are more nourishing for them focus on um and on a whole foods based diet basically yeah beautiful okay so we're going to dive in a little bit deeper now we've got you on the show because we really want to talk about gut health um as a priority and I wanted to include um FODMAPs which I know you'll tell us more about in a second but particularly because you know, my experience in clinic is that this is quite a hot topic and, and you know, gut health is a bit of a buzz phrase, um, mm. but FODMAPs seem to be something that people are starting to explore a little bit more and I'd love for you to, um, I guess, dispel any myths and give us a lot of clarity on these two areas today. Yes. Um, and just so for the benefit of our listeners who might not be um, you know, as far down the research as you are, could you start with, um, you know, a definition of perhaps gut health and what that means and then we'll start to explain what FODMAPs are in a little bit more detail. Sure. So, yeah, the gut is an incredibly complicated um, system of organs, you know. It starts from the mouth and ends, you know, in your bum basically. And through that process, you know, there's lots of chemical reactions that occur between your enzymes and the food you eat and there's uh, muscular movements that churn and propel the food through. There's um, gut microbes in there that, that help break the food down and produce certain vitamins and then there's also 
um, all of the transport factors that uh, help your body to absorb what it's needed. Um, so there's a, a lot of potential there for things to go to go wrong or to not run smoothly, and and that's where you can st- start to see problems in the gut. So a healthy gut would be one where you've got regular bowel movements that um, are not painful. Um, you have sort of minimal bloating, minimal intestinal distress, um, you know, no reflux, etc. Um, they'd be the sort of the main indicators that things are going smoothly and that, you know, that the, the stool is fully formed and not, you know, diarrhea or constipation, no blood in the bowl, etc. Um, and I find for, you know, the vast majority of my patients that's not the case. There's always something going wrong with the gut and that's why they tend to come in and see a, a naturopath is, um, you know, if their health is not that great, the gut's often the first indicator of, of things uh, not going so well. Yeah, that's a good point. I think certainly, um, you know, one of my questions was how prevalent do you think this is? And certainly in my experience, it's it's very common and it sounds yes. like you're having the same um, situation in clinic. Definitely. I think up to up to 20% of people will experience irritable bowel syndrome in their lifetime, which is that's a massive percentage of people and that's not including all the other things that can go wrong with the bowel, you know, more serious conditions like inflammatory bowel disease, bowel cancer, um, you know, upper digestive diseases like reflux, liver problems, gallstones, etc. There's, it's very, very common, very, very common. And IBS in particular is something that people uh, put up with. And for many, many years, there was all sorts of theories on what was causing it, and it was largely thought to be a psychological problem. But um, recent, you know, research in the last ten years, predominantly in Melbourne, has sort of um, come up with some dietary strategies that can really improve the symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome, um, and that's where the the low FODMAP diet has has come into play. Beautiful. So, what does FODMAP stand for? <laughs> it's a long it's a long acronym. It mm. stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. Mm-hmm. So these are all. Um, uh, types of sugars and carbohydrates found in the diet that the key to them being called a FODMAP is that they're rapidly fermentable by our gut bacteria. So the gut bacteria gobble them up and produce gases and acids and they often tend to be osmotic. They, they attract water into the gut. Now, the reason they're problematic for people with irritable bowel syndrome is because they increase the production of gas and fluid that pulls in the gut. Um, that can trigger... Uh, spasm and irritation in the gut wall, which can lead to symptoms of diarrhea, bloating, and constipation. Um, and it's been found that by restricting these particular carbohydrates, you reduce the total gas load in the bowel and the fluid load in the bowel, and that can improve the symptoms of irritable, uh, irritable bowel syndrome in around 70% of people who are put on that diet. So it's not a cure-all for everyone with IBS. There's other factors that come into play, of course but it certainly has been found to be quite effective. Um, However, listeners might also be aware that many of those fermentable carbohydrates have a lot of health benefits as well. We're told to eat more of um, these sorts of carbohydrates to feed our good gut bugs. So it's definitely not a diet plan that's supposed to be on forever. It's supposed to be something where you eliminate foods for a certain period of time, start reintroducing them and just avoid the ones that cause you the most intestinal distress. So it's certainly not something people should just um, embark on for the sake of testing it out. It is quite a restricted diet and you do miss out on some very key, um, key important nutrients for the body. 
Yeah, I think you make lots of good points in there. So I just want to break a few down. But certainly, um, you know, the last point you made I think is really important. What I see is that people end up cutting out nearly everything. Um, Not only is that sort of, you know, a potential nutrient-deprived state, but you then feel quite stressed and restricted with what you can and can't consume and, and, you know, even more negative um, sort of consequences can be, more intolerances because you've got so, uh, I guess, such little variety in in your day. And that can be, yes. um, you know, it's a bit of a vicious cycle then, isn't it? Yeah, certainly. And I think one of the big problems that occurs with that, especially if someone's doing it without the help of a supportive, you know, natural you know, therapist, a, a dietitian or whatnot, is that people create become anxious about eating. And the thing that happens is if you're eating in an anxious state, if you're eating in an aroused state, that in itself impairs your digestion. So you can start to have reactions to foods that you're not actually reacting to because of the food itself, more because of the stressed out state you're putting your body in. I have seen that, unfortunately, with a lot of people who've been on the low FODMAP diet and perhaps not had the ideal success that they wanted and they start restricting more and more and then they start restricting other factors in the diet that they think they're reacting to and they become very hypervigilant around food and eating and that can trigger um, some serious serious problems and, and distorted uh, eating as well. So it is something to, I think, if you're going to embark on the low FODMAP diet, to do it with a knowledgeable practitioner who can guide you through it and um, and also look at, you know, beyond just avoiding FODMAPs, how can you improve your gut function anyway, you know, to begin with rather than just avoiding things, what can you do to improve the state of your gut too. Yeah, absolutely. So let's just go back a little bit. Um, so for those that don't know, could you give us a couple of the really common foods that are classified as FODMAPs? Sure. So they, they come in different categories. There's the um, the oligosaccharides. These are long chains of, of um, sugar carbohydrates together and there's two different types. There's the fructooligosaccharides. A classic example of that one would be onion, which is normally the one people struggle with the most who, who, who suffer from IBS. Um, galacto-oligosaccharides are another long-chain form of carbohydrate. They're found classically in uh, beans and lentils. Um, so they, they're what's, you know, cause you to fart a lot if you've eaten a lot of beans and lentils. They're actually very good for you, but for someone with IBS, they can be problematic. A disaccharide is the the one for that is lactose. So some people obviously don't produce the enzyme or enough of the enzyme to break down lactose to make it absorbable so they can get diarrhea and bloating. Um, the monosaccharide that's included is fructose. So some people, uh, again, lack an enzyme or a transporter to absorb fructose in the free form from food. So if they have large amounts of fructose in things like um, apples and pears, um, then they, they can get, you know, diarrhea and discomfort. And lastly, there's the polyols, which are um, sugar alcohols. They're found in stone fruits mostly, but they're also found in um, in many chewing gums and diet products in the form of sorbitol and xylitol, which are um, non-caloric sweeteners added to food to, you know, to make it taste sweet. So they're found across a very broad range of food types, and it can take a little while to really know which category of these FODMAPs is your biggest trigger. I tend to find the biggest ones in, in most patients is, well, lactose is a clear-cut one. If you've got lactose intolerance, you can't have dairy products that contain lactose. It's a pretty black and white one, which is makes it easy for some people to eliminate. Um, the other more problematic ones would be the, the fructans, which is the onions and garlic and 
leeks and um, and the polyols, which are in your stone fruits and stuff. I tend to find they cause people the most grief um, who 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 have IBS. Yeah, so that's another fantastic point. I think it's really, really important to look at the, you know, the entire list of FODMAPs, but then have a look at closely what, um, you know, what's affecting you and certainly what you're most sensitive to because some of the old school advice that I sort of hear uh, passed on from clients is that they get this list of every food that's a FODMAP and it's almost like the instruction is that you can never eat any of these foods again, which is completely false. Yes, totally false and unfortunately that has been the message that's got out there. Also, I think a problem is um, many of the people still seem to be handing out old FODMAP lists which Mm. need to be updated. Uh, That's where the the Monash app for your phone comes in, which I think we'll, we'll talk about at some point. Um, the other thing is that fructose malabsorption was thought to be the biggest trigger for IBS when the original research came out and we're now discovering that that's not as big a deal as once thought. But unfortunately, people get that diagnosis of fructose malabsorption and they think, oh, for the rest of my life, I have to avoid all FODMAPs. And it's certainly not the case. And it's um, fructose malabsorption itself is not even a disease. It's just a, you know, a slight abnormality in how your body handles certain sugars. So yeah, it can be very dangerous if people aren't doing this as a an intervention type diet and then reintroducing some foods and also looking at all the other factors in their lifestyle that might be affecting their gut health, which is sometimes neglected by some uh, practitioners out there. You know, things like caffeine intake, alcohol intake, stress, hormones, inflammation, um, you know, gut bacteria balance, intake of other foods that can be aggravating to the gut. There's so many different things you really do, do need to look into, you know, without just assuming it's just the FODMAPs that's causing the problem. Yeah, absolutely. And I think certainly the approach needs to be um, individualised as we've been discussing, but um, factoring in that stress relationship with food like you discussed um, earlier because the problem is is when someone's given this huge list of do not eat, that is so overwhelming that there is then that fear of what can I eat and can I actually eat anything? Where, Absolutely. Whereas, you know, the stress is obviously then going to contribute to that whole vicious cycle more and more. So what we really want to break down is that there are those five categories of FODMAPs and as an individual it may be only one or it might be a, a, a combination of, but that doesn't mean that every food is a trigger to you. Absolutely. That's, mm. that's spot on. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. So just on the IBS topic, um, I know we're going back a little bit, but I think this yes. is an important point. Mm. Um, what's, what are your thoughts on the diagnosis of IBS and, and how maybe sometimes it's used when there's, say, no other explanation for the, the gut distress or, or symptoms? Yeah, well, that's, that's an important point because IBS is actually a diagnosis by removing other diagnoses. So mm. it's, it's, not, it's not a disease in and of itself as such. Uh, it does need to be checked by a doctor first to eliminate, you know, whether you might have inflammatory bowel disease or whether you have celiac disease or, or um, you know, various other bowel conditions, you know, even bowel cancer. It's important if you're getting persistent symptoms that, that sound like IBS, you know, diarrhea, bloating, constipation, changes in bowel habit, pain, etc., that that's thoroughly investigated before they arrive at the diagnosis of, of, of IBS. And so IBS is kind of a... Um, it's more of a, a description for a bunch of symptoms with no known cause. Although we, they, we do have a better understanding now of, of some of the triggers with um, 
with what's causing irritable bowel syndrome. So we do know that uh, a few factors come into play. There's dysmotility, which basically means the movement of the bowel is abnormal. So it's either too quick, too slow, or contracting irregularly. Um, and there's what's called visceral hypersensitivity. So the organ or the viscera, the organ, is sensitive to distension. So if you have a person uh, without IBS and you put a balloon inside their bowel and blew it up, they would, after a certain amount of, you know, blowing the gas into it, they would feel, you know, some mild bloating or some maybe even a little bit of discomfort. If you did that same balloon and blew it up to the same size in a person with IBS, they would report extreme pain. Um, and possibly then have spasms and contractions of the bowel. So there's this hypersensitivity in the um, nerves and muscles of the bowel, and coupled with that, there's this irregular um, movement. And then there's also what we call dysbiosis. So irritable bowel syndrome uh, sufferers do tend to have um, abnormal gut bacteria profiles. So they don't always have you know pathological bacteria in there or parasites, but they do sometimes have a shift in in the levels of good versus, you know, not so good bacteria in the gut. Um, And that is thought to play a role too. And we're still, there's still a lot of research into, um, you know, how we can manipulate our gut microbes to benefit our health. So it's, yeah, with IBS, very important, get it diagnosed first by a professional. And if, if, um, you know, you've arrived at that diagnosis of IBS, that's when sometimes a low FODMAP diet may help. Um, amongst many other things you can try too, but it certainly had the best research on it so far of the dietary approaches for management of IBS. Yeah, awesome. So mm. I do want to dive into the microbe conversation next. I think that's um, you know, obviously very linked with the gut health topic and um, we're starting to really, I guess, focus our research there into what can be done. But one of my thoughts was um, with the low FODMAP approach and, and say you go on a, um, a bit of an elimination protocol, um, obviously then you don't have the stimulus for the development of the right microbes to digest and assimilate and, and do their job. Yes. So then what do you think is the, the experience when that food's um, reintroduced and perhaps symptoms might not necessarily be resolved? Is that uh, intolerance or is that the the reintroduction of a stimulus that hasn't been there for 30 days or 90 days or whatever the protocol was i like the way you're thinking (laughs) i (laughs) i i wonder that myself and i've I've wondered if perhaps you know by you know if you if you're cutting out the food for the microbes then you suddenly throw it back in are you causing a bit of a you know gastrointestinal storm as those microbes start to reproduce again and you know is the is the reaction due to that more so than than an intolerance to um, the food itself, and I think that's a really tough one. We do know that the studies on um, low FODMAP dieters have found that they have a decrease in the level of bifidobacteria and also their butyrate production, which is a beneficial acid produced by gut bugs. It's been linked to lower rates of colon cancer and reduced intestinal permeability. So there is a worry there that a long-term low FODMAP diet will decrease those beneficial gut bugs. I like to encourage my patients to use other sources of fermentable fibers that are less problematic for IBS sufferers. So I'll encourage people to eat more resistant starch, uh, which is found in things like cooked and cooled potatoes and um, plantains and greener bananas and a few different other foods, just to make sure they're still providing some fuel for the bacteria. Resistant starches do tend to be more slower digested by the bacteria, so they trigger less of a rapid... um, production of gases and acids. 
I think the other thing that might be happening with a lot of people with, um, you know, a FODMAP sensitivity could also be what's called small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or SIBO. Mm. So, you know, bacteria are not supposed to be in the small intestine. They're supposed to be in the large, large bowel. And in some people, for some reason, bacteria do migrate into the small intestine and, and cause a lot of problems and trigger a lot of inflammation. And I think, um, unfortunately, the, the testing for SIBO is still uh, not always accurate, so it can be a, a process of sort of eliminating things and reintroducing things and trialling different programs and protocols to establish that. But I think there's still a lot of work to be done in that area. Yeah, it's certainly a really interesting topic. Um and, yeah, like I said earlier, I think certainly the microbes area is still where we're focusing our research, but uh, definitely to be considered because I'm not sure if this is your experience or not in clinic, but what I also experience is um, even someone that cuts out gluten that might obviously not be celiac, but when they go out for dinner and, you know, either accidentally or <laughs> intentionally consume yeah. gluten, their reaction is out of control and they never experienced that when they were eating gluten, say, before they started working with me. Yeah. yeah. Do yeah. you have that sort of experience as well? And do you think that's maybe that, that microbe influence? It could, yeah, it could be the microbe influence. It could be as well that, you know, when you're repeatedly exposed to a noxious stimuli, say, for example, if you were gluten sensitive or um, sensitive to other, you know, food chemicals, that you, your body sort of becomes kind of um, immune immune in a way. It, it mm. gets used to that uncomfortable experience and so it doesn't, you know, there's nothing to compare it to. Whereas when you've been feeling really good for a long time, if you've been eating really well and then you suddenly introduce a bad food or a problematic food, um, you can get that magnification of the reaction. Um, and I don't know how much of that is due to, you know, your body not being able to tolerate it as well because of shifts in your microbes or maybe changes in the levels of enzymes being produced and how much of it is just you're noticing a lot more the the impact of that um, negative element on your body. Yeah, I completely agree. It's a bit of a rabbit hole, that question, but I still yeah. find it really interesting the way we adapt and respond so much to um, the changes that we make over time. Yeah, for sure. And I think, look, the future of the FODMAP approach may be that we, you know, use it in the interim to control symptoms and then uh, perhaps sort of, you know, repair the bowel in some way so that people are able to tolerate those FODMAPs more by shifting, you know, by creating a shift in the micro balance in the gut. But there's still a lot of controversy on, on how that's done and, um, and yeah, it's, it's expensive to test for regularly, you know, uh, stool sampling and stuff is, is expensive. Yeah. And, not something you can sort of do every week to see see how things are shifting and changing that's for sure yeah that's so true and not everyone um is so keen on fecal transports either <laughs> yeah it's a funny that one isn't it <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to wait and see what happens there i think in terms that's of um, yeah and i think unfortunately um same with the fecal transplants the sort of the the enthusiasm behind it is kind of um gotten out of control i've had it some patients that have had it done and actually seen no improvement and it's cost them an enormous amount of money and yeah. um i think that's a, a shame we still need to do a, a lot more research in that area before it can become a routine recommendation for you know severe cases yeah absolutely exciting times though i love seeing all the research directed oh, to this area fascinating i love it as well it's amazing cool all right so what I'd like to do is sort of make it a little bit more practical for someone that's listening today and that might have picked up on some of these symptoms or signs of poor gut health, maybe even potentially identified with some of the foods that you've mentioned as being uh, those digestive triggers. Yes. What would be your advice 
to perhaps where they can start or what they would do from a gut health point of view? Um, firstly, if they're, if they're experiencing some of those symptoms, get checked by your GP and make sure it's nothing serious. It, it usually isn't, but it's always good to check that. Always check as well for um, screen for celiac disease. So the person has to make sure they've been eating gluten for quite a few weeks before that test for it to be accurate. The next step, if you're going to embark on, on a gut repair program, do it with either a, you know, a naturopath, nutritionist or a dietitian that has some understanding of the low FODMAP diet and also hopefully some understanding of a holistic approach to gut health rather than just elimination of certain foods. Mm. Um, and I would start by, uh, if you want to embark on the low FODMAP diet, there is the, the Monash app which you can get on your smartphone. Um, yeah, if you Google yeah. Monash low FODMAP app, it'll, it'll come up. It does cost a little bit of money, I think $10, but all that money goes back into research. So you're supporting um, all the fantastic research that's being done in Australia on, on this diet. Um, and that has, you know, all the different food categories. It has a traffic light system. So green means you can eat it. Yellow means you've got to be cautious. Red means probably avoid, especially on the 6 to 12 weeks that you initially do an elimination. So oh, that's another important point. If you're going to do it, 6 to 12 weeks is what I recommend most clients of relative symptom stability. So eliminate those foods for 6 to 12 weeks and then slowly start introducing foods, you know, one at a time, you know, maybe one a week from then on and see how your body reacts. The other really important thing is when you reintroduce a food, say you try nectarines, for example, and one day you have a really bad reaction to it, that doesn't mean that food automatically gets across for the rest of your life. Uh, it's, it's so important that you retest that again, maybe in, you know, six weeks' time after that or another few months' time because so many things can affect the way your gut reacts. You could have, you know, a bit of a gut bug going around or you could be under stress or perhaps you're, um, you know, eating at an odd time that your body's not used to eating at and all these things can impact on um, on how you process a food. So, yeah, just one reaction does not mean you're intolerant to a food. It's, it has to be tested a few times. Um, and the other thing is look at, you know, dietary quality, making sure you're eating, you know, a real food-based diet, lots of whole foods, foods high in, you know, antioxidants and um, vitamins and minerals, etc. Meal timing is really important. I see a lot of patients who, you know, it's a very 90s thing that, that, that they advertised, you know, people should be grazing during the yeah. day and <laughs> lots of small sort of meals. And we're now realizing that, that that's not only not great for weight loss, it can also be really bad for gut health. Your gut... We evolved in a time where we ate, you know, living out in the the outdoors as hunter-gatherers where, where food was kind of intermittent in supply. We didn't sort of have, you know, constant availability of snacks all the time and our gut sort of responds to that as well. We have a thing called the migrating motor complex or the MMC, which is a, a sweeping motion which cleans out the small intestine and that only happens if there's about a three- to four-hour gap between between eating yes. um, and also if we're, you know, not eating immediately before bed. And if that migrating um, complex isn't going through and clearing the gut out, you can get sort of, you know, uh, food and microbes building up in the gut and migrating into the small intestine and causing problems. So regular meal times is important and, and having a bit of a gap in between meals and snacks is also important. And the other thing I get a lot of my patients to do is to sit down, enjoy your food, eat mindfully, chew properly, um, savour the experience. If you're going to eat something, commit to eating it, enjoy it, you know, and um, and focus on the nourishing qualities of the food rather than obsessing about whether, 
you know, it's got a crumb of gluten in it or um, a little bit of onion or whatever. If, you, if you're approaching food with that kind of attitude, you're improving your actual digestive secretions. You know, when, you, when you're really excited about a meal and it smells delicious, you release more saliva and digestive enzymes, so you break the food down more effectively. So um, that's, a, that's a key. And also eating at regular times, your body has a circadian rhythm. You know, it, it produces certain hormones and certain things at certain times of day. And the more regular you are with your eating, the more likely you are to produce ample digestive enzymes at the right time. So I do get um, patients with severe irritable bowel type symptoms to, you know, try to eat according to the clock um, and, yeah, eat mindfully, enjoy the food and um, try to space out the snacks a bit if they if they can do, you know, assuming they don't have any blood sugar issues or anything like that. Yeah, such important points. Certainly one of the big things we get our clients to do is um, – you know, basically minimize or avoid snacking altogether. And some people look at you like you're speaking another language or yes. <laughs> they're in shock as to how that would ever be possible because they've been told for so long to eat every two hours to speed up your metabolism. And, you know, I believe that's one of the biggest food myths that we've faced for the last 50 years. Agreed, agreed. But and, I, you know, I used to do it as well. I was, I was When I was vegan, veg, I was constantly having small little snacks and, and meals and things and, and and had a lot of digestive distress because of it, and also blood sugar abnormalities as well. You know, I was constantly constantly hungry and hangry. <laughs> yeah, hangry. Yeah, exactly. You go, you miss out on your two hour snack, and you and you're starving, which is not normal. Your body should be able to, you know, go for periods of time without eating huge amounts. Yeah, it's just a great way to eliminate that digestive stress, as you said, That's when we're it. trying to ask our digestive system to do so much every two hours. It's just impossible for it to take a break and start to heal. Exactly, exactly. Mm, very cool. And so just on the gut health topics, I think that's really cool and it um, certainly interests a lot of people with or without a, a FODMAP um, intolerance. So what are your thoughts on gut health and what the average person should be prioritising and, and certainly how they could maybe improve their current gut status? Um. There's, well, there's a lot they can do. I think encouraging people to eat more of those FODMAPy foods is is actually great for gut health if they're tolerating them okay because they feed the good bacteria. So things like, um, you know, your onions and garlics and leeks and your beans and legumes can be really good. Grains I still find can be a little bit problematic for some people. So um, for gut health, if they're having issues, I do find – one second, that's my dog. It's <laughs> okay. <laughs> He wants to join the party. Yeah, Uh, yeah, so a nutrient-dense diet will help with gut health. Probiotics can be useful. There's millions of different types out there and all of them have their story as to why they're the best one or why they're the most researched. I think, you know, do that in conjunction with a practitioner. But there's certainly enough evidence, I feel, that probiotics can play a useful role in, in gut repair. There's uh, amino acids that can be useful too. I often use glutamine with my patients, which some people respond to really well for gut repair. Um, avoiding inflammatory sort of foods. So sometimes that can be, you know, it's, it's mostly avoiding processed foods, excess omega-6 oils, um, excess refined carbohydrates, etc. cetera. Um, focusing on, you know, whole foods is, is the key. Um, Fermented foods come into it. I find not everyone tolerates them so well if they're, if they're having gut issues. They sometimes have to start slow with, with fermented foods, so things like, you know, kimchi and kefir and, kefir and uh, sauerkraut. Um, 
But I, yeah, I tend to focus on just, yeah, simple food that's easy to digest, but lots and lots of diversity in the types of fibers you're consuming. So plenty of different fruits and vegetables and um, good quality meats and seafoods, etc. Yeah, it sounds like it's definitely coming back to quality, which is a very important point. Um, but one thing I did want to touch on was the, I guess, the overdoing of gut health, I find, um, since it's become a bit of a buzz term, People seem to think that they need to do everything, like probiotics, they need to take sauerkraut, they need to have bone broth, they need to do this. And I think that, you know, we certainly can take it too far. Absolutely. So what would be your advice, advice around a, a dosage or a, or a place to start and, and certainly your thoughts on um, too much of a good thing? Yeah, I think that's a really, really important point. Um, if you think about, you know, I like to get back to basics. We evolved as hunter-gatherers. They weren't out there fermenting everything they ate. They weren't taking probiotic capsules. They weren't, you know, I mean, they had the the benefit of not being exposed to, you know, multiple courses of antibiotics and chlorinated water and all the other things that can affect our gut microbes. But I'd start simply first by cleaning up the diet, making it a whole foods-based diet. Um, to that, I'd probably add, depending on your symptoms, uh, a, a probiotic capsule, you know, a reputable one, you know, maybe one of the practitioner brands or a good retail brand. See how you go with that for a while first. Um, if things aren't improving, then you can look at adding, you know, some other things in there. Fermented foods I think are useful, but they're also a bit overhyped at the moment as well. I don't think they're an essential part of people's diets, but they can be useful because we aren't exposed as, to as many beneficial microbes anymore. You know, we're not eating food straight out of the garden it's been, you know, sitting on supermarket shelves and it's been sprayed and it's been washed and it's, you know, fairly devoid of any microbial life. So the fermented foods that people are now eating can be useful for sort of establishing that balance back. But, you know, I don't think people have to be spending, you know, $20 a week on expensive sauerkrauts and stuff at the health food store. They can just either do it themselves at home or, or not even bother with the fermented foods. They can get, you know, just eat a lot more fresh food and whole foods and that'll start to create shifts in their own gut microbes anyway. Yeah, it's obviously really relative and it depends on where someone's starting from. If you've come off a food pyramid and eating lots of packaged and refined foods, then you're going to see significant improvements just by real food or jerf. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, and I think that's the, the first starting point is, you know, eliminate all the processed crap and you, you should be well on the way. And if you're still experiencing a lot of problems, yeah, see, see a good naturopath or holistic nutritionist or dietitian who, um, who, you know, has a keen interest in that area and explore a bit more um, what might be going on. And look at all those other factors as well, you know, your stress levels, sleep, um, social situation, all of that sort of stuff that can have an impact on our health and create, you know, those gut reactions Sometimes it's got nothing to do with the food we're eating. It's the you know people we're around or the situation we're in. So I think that's important to look at as well. The whole you know the whole big picture, the whole puzzle. Absolutely. Yeah. Very cool. That's been amazing. Such great research, and I hope our listeners have have learned a lot. Before we wrap up today, um, we just have a couple of questions that we like to ask our guests on the Real Food Real, just to learn a little bit more about you and what you're up to for the coming months. Yes. So let's talk food for a second. What yep. what do your favourite foods at the moment and what does a day on your plate look like? Um, a day on my plate, I still have a bit of a sweet tooth even after many years of, you know, re reading and researching in this sort of area. I still struggle with um, sugary foods, I've got to admit. My favourite breakfast is the Brook Farm gluten-free muesli <laughs> with some yoghurt, which is full of sugar and I shouldn't be having it, but I enjoy it <laughs> lots. 
I'm quite addicted to it. And seeing as I work in a health food store, it's always there and available. So you know what? I, At least you don't, yeah. you're not sort of in this false sense of that it's the best choice for you. You're well, no, you're well aware. <laughs> no illusions there. <laughs> I just love it. Um, but when I'm when I'm sort of being good in inverted commas, then I'll probably have either. Um, I like. I actually really enjoy having chicken soup for breakfast. Maybe that you know a bone broth and lots of veggies. I find that that's really sustaining and, and good, especially in winter. Um, lunchtime, I'll always have leftovers. Um, me and my partner are obsessed with making this kale dish where you saute the kale with a little bit of mushed up anchovies, which sounds disgusting, but it's actually incredible. And I'll eat loads of kale with some, um, either mashed potato or mashed sweet potato and maybe some kangaroo or a good quality grass fed steak. Um, make a lot of frittatas. Um, often have, you know, sweet potato baked in the oven and then have some, um, you know, like a chili mince or a bolognese mince on it. Nice. Um, grilled fish, the usual sort of whole fruity sort of stuff. I'm trying at the moment to include a bit more lentils and legumes in my diet. I've actually had been following a, a low FODMAP-ish diet for a while and I'm testing out now and including some more of those um, important fermentable fibres uh, and seeing how I go with things and, and tolerating them a lot better than I used to, which is a really good thing. Yeah, nice that you're still experimenting even with all that knowledge that you have. It's good that you can you know, apply that to your own life and, and really work out what your body can and can't tolerate you know, today rather than just for five years ago. Yes, yeah, for sure. Beautiful. All right, that sounds delicious. I think you're probably making everyone hungry with those ideas and that cow dish sounds like it's definitely one to experiment with. Yeah, it's it's really yummy. I, you know, kale's nice, but that just takes it to a whole new level. It's really good. Yeah, cool. All right. And what's next for Dad Patrick? What are you up to for the rest of 2015? Uh, I am trying to start writing a book actually on um, hopefully a sort of food and lifestyle plan for anxiety and depression because mental health is an area I'm very passionate about and I've had, you know, the reason I studied counselling was because I care greatly about um, people suffering from mental health issues. I think it's an area we still have a huge amount of work as society to work with. And one thing I've seen sort of neglected in, in the Australian market anyway is, uh, um, is, is a book on the non-counselling, non-medication side of looking after your mental health. So yeah. things to do with inflammation, omega-3s, um, all of that sort of stuff. I'm going to touch on the MTFHR side of the debate which I'm really scared of because it's so complicated (laughs) yeah I know every time we talk about it on the show it's like everyone just sits there in absolute awe of this huge area of you know that we open up Mm. and I'm I'm still undecided whether we're making a mountain out of a molehill or whether it is something that's of of key importance so I'm still on the fence on on that one I think the the acronym though is uh appropriate I know (laughs) It's, it's quite ironic, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. Mm. So that's the plan with that and then just the, the usual working in the, the clinic at, um, in Paran and um, I also work in the health food store still there. So that keeps me busy and then, um, and then just spending time up where I live in the Dandenongs enjoying the beautiful surroundings, which I'm looking out at right now. Oh, very nice. Sounds yeah. very cool. We'll have to get you back on the show to touch on or discuss your passion for food, nutrition, and, and mental health. That would be an awesome topic. Absolutely. So look forward to it. learning more. Yes. And um, last question, where can our listeners find you? Those are looking to either see you for, um, you know, like some support with their nutrition or have you got a blog that we can direct our listeners to to learn more about you? Yes. So 
Um, I'm on Facebook at Jad Patrick Natural Therapies, or one word. Um, Instagram as Jad Patrick Naturopathy, and on Twitter just as Jad Patrick. Um, you can also, for consults, uh, it's best to sort of email me first, and that's um, jadmpatrick at gmail.com. And uh, I work at Paran Health Foods in uh, 201 Commercial Road in, in South Air or in Paran. And we have a clinic space upstairs called The Orchard, um, and it's theorchard.com.au, I think. The Orchard Paran, sorry, .com.au. And we've got a number of different practitioners there, massage therapists, etc. And that's where I do my clinical consulting is through is through the um, the orchard space above Pran, Pran Health Foods. Um, so yeah, you're welcome to email me if you wish to make an appointment or um, or message me on Facebook or anything along those lines. Beautiful. I'm sure everyone's going to be dying to find out more about you. And thanks so much for sharing your knowledge. It's been a great topic, and um, I hope everyone's learned a lot from you today, Jad. Thanks again, and I look forward to speaking to you really soon. Thanks so much, Steph. It's been a pleasure. Awesome. I'll let you get back to your pups. They sound like they want some attention. (laughs) They're wrestling in the background. (laughs) Awesome. Take care. See ya. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.